Hello and welcome to Horrid Happenings. Thanks so much for joining me again today. I am sorry for the massive delay in between episodes. I know I said I was going to get on more of a schedule, but I haven't. So I've had a chaotic Christmas, New Year, and then going back into work after New Year. And I just, I like to think I'm super organised. And I say that I am. And I try and put that positivity out there into the world. And it just doesn't work for me. So I am an unorganised mess, but we move. So this case today is a case that takes place in the 80s. I don't have any other business to attend to before I get into it, um, apart from I just want to do a quick trigger warning. I was going to do it throughout when I get to the gruesome parts, but I figured I'd best do it at the beginning in case it's something that some of our my listeners all probably three of you um, might not want to listen to so trigger warning for kidnap rape torture and necrophilia so this is the story of the shoe fetish slayer aka the lust killer aka the long tom river killer um but known as jerome jerome brudos um the names that they give these killers in the media am i right Jesus wept, just ridiculous. But anyway, so in January 1968, a man named Jerome Brudos terrorised the women of Portland with his serious and in turn deadly foot fetish. So he wanted women to fulfil his twisted fantasies of control and his necrophiliac desires. It would actually only be the following year in 1969 when unfortunately his victims were found deceased. And with that, the horrific life of Mr. Brudos became public public knowledge. So Jerome was born Jerome Henry Brudos on January the 31st, 1939 in Webster, South Dakota. Dakota? Dakota. Dunno. Anyway. He was the second of two sons to Henry and Eileen Brudos. And it is reported that although they hadn't planned Jerome, Elaine or Eileen am I saying Eileen, accepted her pregnancy in hopes of having a daughter. Following uh, Jerome's birth, Eileen, it is Eileen, didn't hide the fact that she was disappointed in the birthing of another boy and uh, whilst she was loving, caring and warm towards her other son, she actually showed clear signs of dislike towards Jerry or Jerome, they called him Jerry. From as early as he can remember, he said his mother was highly critical of pretty much everything that he did. Um, And at the age of five, he brought home his first pair of stilettos from a junkyard. She belittled Jerome. She was calling him wicked for liking women's shoes and, you know, berated him completely, insisted that he take them back immediately. But that isn't what he did. He actually tried to hide them and was wearing them around. But once his mother found out, she was furious with him and burned the shoes in front of him. This is believed to be when something snapped in his head and his obsessions with women's footwear began. So as a child, Jerry tried to steal shoes from any woman or young lady that he could. One of those being his teacher in the first grade he um, had noticed that she changed into her heels when she got to work and actually had a spare pair by her desk through the day and he found himself fixated on these pair of shoes throughout the day. 
So after weeks, he plucked up the courage to steal them. He was caught by another young lad who then told his teacher and his teacher in turn berated him um, and shouted at him in front of the entire class, which made him run off. But kind of fueled his desire even more. And I think maybe the desire to keep it hidden as well, in a sense. But anyway, he also started even stealing mummy's underwear from his neighbours' houses. So he would apparently befriend younger brothers of teenage girls in the neighbourhood so that he'd have an excuse to enter these girls' bedrooms and he'd then steal their shoes and their undergarments. One report stated that a teenage family friend who was visiting at the Brudos home actually went and took a nap on Jerry's bed, Jerome's bed, um, before she was woken to him trying to remove her shoes, which obviously freaked her out. She did one, told his mom he was caught and he endured beatings and beratement again from his mother. With these happenings and the things that were going on, he was getting caught. He actually spent a lot of time and a lot of years in and out of different facilities and psychiatric hospitals receiving psychotherapy. So even though he was receiving the psychotherapy in between these stints in the hospitals, he was still stalking women. He was stalking women and young ladies and then he even went as far as he was pushing them down or just straight up choking them into unconsciousness so he could then take off with their shoes. While he was in hospital um, talking with the doctors, they quickly learned of Jerome's obsessions, um, his collections and even his horrific fantasy of wanting to collect girls' bodies in freezers and keep them as his dolls. He wanted to do this so he could then arrange them into sexual positions to his liking. And even with hearing this horrific truth, the doctors reported that he wasn't actually unsafe in society, that he just needed to mature, so they released him, which, you know, super smart. Super smart. It was only actually at the age of 17 in 1956 when he fully thought out, planned and followed through with a violent attack. He stalked a young teenager and after he found some, after she found, sorry, that someone was stealing her underwear, he told her that he knew of the person responsible and that he would help her catch them. Obviously it was him stealing the underwear, but she didn't know that. So one evening, he actually managed to convince the young woman to meet him at a local farmhouse which in some reports say that it was their family farmhouse, but I'm not 100% sure. Once she arrived, though, he came out with a mask on and began threatening her at knife point. He dragged her inside and he told her, I'm going to stab you to death if you don't comply with my sexual demands. He then forced her to take naked photos. And once um, he was happy with that, the girl managed to escape. She did report this to the police, but no arrest was made, unfortunately. Months later, though, he struck again. He was out driving, and whilst he was out driving around, he kidnapped a 17-year-old girl. He forced her into his car and drove her out to the same farmhouse. But he started to beat her pretty savagely. At the time, there was actually a couple walking past the farmhouse and heard screams coming from there. They obviously went in to investigate and they found Jerome standing over this girl as she was like cowering in fear. He tried to claim that he was the hero, he chased off her attacker and he was there to help. But, you know, the couple didn't believe his bullshit and so they called the police. He was arrested, he did confess to everything and after his confession they did a search of his room and they found photos that were clearly taken without consent and they also found an abundance of stolen underwear. 
So he was then sent off to a psychiatric ward, which was at Oregon State Hospital for nine months. There it was determined that he actually had borderline schizophrenia after he underwent a lot of continuous psychiatric evaluations. And although he had to stay there for that nine months, he was able to attend school still during the day. So shortly after he released, was released yet again because, you know, they just keep releasing this guy. He actually graduated from high school and then he went on to become an electronics technician. Following this, he did a very small stint in the army in 1959, but he was actually discharged after only five months. He was found, he was talking about his strange obsessions whilst he was in the barracks, which then led him to being sent to an on-base psychiatrist. And in turn, he ended up being discharged from the military for what is claimed to be for his bizarre fetishes. So what a weird thing to be discharged from the military for, you know, weird. So after this, his parents actually did allow him to live back in their home, but not obviously without explaining their grave disappointment in him to begin with. So after being home for a short while, he met a young lady named Darcy Meltzer. She was 17 years old at the time. Darcy's parents were not happy about this relationship at all. But being a young 17-year-old, that just pushed Darcy further into Jerome's arms and they married pretty quickly. Freshly married, they then moved around for a little bit before they settled in Oregon, where they then went on to have two children together. Now, neighbours of the family later said they'd seemed relatively normal. Jerome, for instance, never smoked, and never smoked, sorry. He never drank and he didn't even curse. But behind closed doors, things were not as they seemed. Um, it didn't take long, though, for Jerry's outside obsessions to wedge themselves into his marriage. So Jerome would make demands to Marcy um, that required her to poos no poos Jesus wept, I can't speak today. La 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 la. Required her to pose nude and clean the house in the nude with high heels on. For a while Darcy complied to these demands, but a few years in she grew tired of bowing down to him. And one day she actually entered the garage where she found pictures that Jerry Jerome had stashed of nude women. She confronted him and there and then he decided that no one but him was allowed access to the garage, the garage, the garage. I am so sorry. I don't know what's wrong with me today. I tried to record this episode earlier and I did a full 40 minutes. And when I went to listen to it back, I didn't have my microphone plugged in properly. So, you know, I'm just, I'm on it today. So anyway, where was I up to? Blah, blah, blah. She confronted him um, and then he decided there and then that was nobody was allowed access to the garage but him. He put locks on the door that only himself could open and the only way his family could communicate with him whilst he was inside his garage that he called his workshop um, was actually through an intercom that he had installed from the house into said workshop. So with that, Darcy spent more time focusing on the children, um, ignoring him and she did not participate in any more of his demands. So then that's when their marriage started to become even more strained. So not being able to fulfil his fantasies at home, Jerome started to stalk the neighbours' houses looking for women's shoes and underwear. But in 1957, he decided to take it one step further again because this guy, this fucking guy. So Jerry, while Jerome was taking a walk downtown, he actually spotted a lady wearing a pair of shoes that he very much liked the look of. He decided that he was going to follow this woman home. 
Once he was there, he waited outside until she was in bed and asleep. He broke into the house and went straight for the woman. He strangled her into unconsciousness. He raped her and then he fled with her shoes. This is when Jerome found that the feel of a lifeless body really aroused him and it wouldn't take him long um, wanting to find his next, next victim. So, Linda Catherine Slauson, she was a 19-year-old encyclopedia saleswoman. She was the fourth of six children. She lived at home with her parents, Mildred and Wilbur Glenn Slauson, alongside three of her siblings in Portland, Oregon. She was conducting business by going door-to-door -door in the local neighbourhoods on, and on January the 26th, 1968, Linda's parents phoned the police reporting their daughter missing after she'd failed to return home from her shift. After an investigation into her work route was taken, um, neighbours living on the street that she was last seen to be working on actually confirmed that she was in fact going door-to-door -door in that area that day, but ultimately there was actually no leads, there was no witnesses to her actual disappearance and there was no body, so the police essentially at the time had nothing to go on. Later on, uh, Jan Susan Whitney, she was 23 years old on November the 6th, 1968, and whilst driving home from a Thanksgiving dinner down Interstate 5 between Salem and Albany, her car broke down. With no contact, with no way to contact someone for a lift, she actually took a stranger upon their offer to help, and that's the last time that anyone would see Jan. So Jan's vehicle was found later at a rest stop just north of Albany, but again, there was no leads or witnesses to account of her whereabouts. That is until later during the same week of her disappearance, an anonymous letter arrived claiming that the writer of the letter had actually watched from the rest stop as the missing woman got into a car with a strange man. A public appeal was, of course, launched to find the author of this note, but nobody ever came forward. So they then concluded that the writer may have actually been that man himself from the car kind of bragging about his crime um, and that unfortunately was the last lead on Jan's disappearance so it started to go cold. Only a few months later on the 27th of March 1969, 18-year-old Karen Spinker, she was arriving at a rooftop car park but she unfortunately never made it inside the building. Karen had arranged to meet her mum for lunch at the Mier possibly, and Frank department store. When Karen was a no-show, her mother decided she was first checked to see if Karen had gone back to the dorm room at a university, but when she discovered that Karen wasn't there either, she called the police and she reported her daughter as a missing person. But once again, there was no leads into where this young woman was and they were not linking these three disappearances as one in the same. But then, on the 21st of April 1969, there wasn't an abduction, but actually an attempt to abduct. And that was a, a young woman by the name of Sharon Wood. She was 24-year-old, mother of two. She was heading to her car after leaving the history department of Portland State University, where she was a full-time employee. As Sharon was walking her usual route, taking many a time, she was surrounded by other people before she got to this car park, but something just fell off. She was having a frantic day. She'd actually misplaced her keys and was trying to go back to the car to see if she could find them, if they were in the car. Um, when she arrived at the stairwell of the car park, she became then confused about where her car was parked. So she followed the stairwell down to the basement level. 
but still in a panic, wasn't 100% sure if she was correct on where her car was. So she actually kept changing direction, trying to figure out her next movement, walking back and forwards. And then suddenly she realised that there was a man not far behind who was actually mimicking the movement she was making. So he was changing directions when she was changing directions, turning around. And within seconds of her noticing him, this man was by her side and tapped her on the shoulder. When she turned around to him, he was like, oh, ma'am, you too? As if to say, you know, trying to ask her if she was lost like he was. But Sharon's instincts kicked in pretty quickly and her mind was telling her something wasn't right. So she tried to run. But in that very moment when she tried to run, the man pulled out a gun and said to her, if you don't scream, then I won't shoot. But in a frightful panic, Sharon, of course, screamed at the top of her lungs. She tried backing away from him um, while she was screaming, but he closed in and quickly put his arms around her neck and then squashed his hands over her mouth to try and stop her from screaming. Somehow his thumb actually became lodged into Sharon's mouth. So without a second thought and being an absolute badass, Sharon fought back and quickly sunk her teeth hard into his thumb. And when she was doing this, she then had like, paralyzed fear and her jaw locked and she just could not let go of him so in a rage the man grabbed Sharon's hair and repeatedly smashed her head into the ground until eventually her she relaxed her jaw and let go um how I don't know how she wasn't knocked clean out with that but because of Sharon's fight he was unable to do a quick abduction like I'm presuming he had planned and before long another car had come into the same level so he had to run. He ran for a little while, leaving Sharon there watching him run. And then he started running back towards her. Obviously, Sharon was very dazed but she and also frozen in fear, thinking, oh, my God, he's going to shoot me. But he bolted back to retrieve the gun he'd actually dropped and then did one, leaving her there. Unfortunately, that wasn't when Sharon was saved. Um, the car that entered the garage actually didn't stop. They just drove on by, whether they actually saw what was going on or not, but they carried on regardless. And Sharon had to find the fight in herself to get up and get herself back to find somebody to help. And the only thing she could think of at the time was to go back to the department where she worked at. She was pretty sure at the time she had a concussion, but she managed to make herself back to the university. When she got there, a colleague of hers named Charlie White assisted her back to the area of the attack and they were looking around for a while before two police officers finally arrived on the scene. Sharon was obviously understandably in a great amount of shock at first and she was kind of unable to explain. But after being looked over and calmed down, she was able to give police a full description of the man who had attacked her. And he was a tall, heavy set man in his 30s with cropped light hair, and she was almost certain he was wearing women's clothes. It was only the very next day, on April the 22nd, when another young lady, uh, I think Gloria Jean Smith was her name, she was walking alongside the train tracks near Parish Middle School when a green Volkswagen car pulled beside her. A heavy set, strange man hopped out tried to grab her and drag the terrified she was only a teenager a terrified teen to his car whilst holding a plastic gun to her temple gloria screamed and fought like fuck and she managed to break free at the same time as this there was a woman who happened to be out in a garden a nearby house she heard all the commotion came out yelled out to the man which obviously startled him making him get back in his car alone and flee so again the following day 
23rd of April, a 22-year-old lady named Linda Saley. She was at Portland's Lloyd Shopping Centre picking out a birthday present for her boyfriend. Her shopping trip had come to an end at about 5.30pm and she was last seen leaving the jewellers, thought to be heading back to her car. But somewhere in between the shop and her car, she was stopped and abducted and disappeared without a trace. It was only after Linda was reported missing that the police actually suspected there may be a serial killer at large in the area with all these attempted abductions and successful ones. And unfortunately, it wasn't long before they had confirmation of their concerns, as May the 10th is when a fisherman located Linda Saley's body. Sam Wallace was out walking the banks of the river to find a nice spot to fish that day when he came across a white flash of something that caught his eye. He wasn't quite close enough to determine what it was, so he actually climbed a nearby tree to get a better look over the water, and that's when he saw the hair waving on the surface and the face of Linda staring back at him. Police were called immediately and they arrived promptly to remove the body. They then spent the next two days dredging the riverbed mud in search of more victims. And on day two of the search is when they actually came across the body of Karen Spinker. These women's bodies were found tied down using specific knots to, by nylon cord and copper wire to different car parts. And they both had similar injur injuries and the same causes of death. On May the 14th, 1969, police were receiving calls from, well, from one student in particular at a university who claimed to have had several phone calls herself from a strange man claiming to be a lonely Vietnam vet wanting to go out on a date. With further probing, they found that she wasn't actually the only lady who'd received these calls. One of the young women had actually taken this man, who was described as a heavy set, tall male with light cropped hair, upon his offer for a date. He told her that he had information about psychiatric treatments that he'd gathered from his time that he'd spent at Walter Reed Medical Centre. This interested her immensely as it coincided with her studies at the university. So she goes on the date and everything seems fine um, at the beginning, but it very quickly took a turn. During the time together, he asked her to fake sadness so that he could comfort her. He want, at one point reached out and started to massage her shoulders and then after reference the dead woman being found in the river saying why would you agree to meet a stranger at such a dangerous time like this before then casually mentioning that he could probably abduct his date and be gone with her. So with this information police then asked her to call them again if he gets back in contact with her and also asked her if she'd be willing to set up another meet with this man if he did. Luckily enough, she said yes, and a few days later he called and they made arrangements to meet. Arriving for his date though, the man found that instead of the young woman he'd previously been out with waiting for him, that the police were there instead. They interviewed and found out it was of course 30-year-old Jerome Brudos. He claimed his comments that he made on the date were just silly jokes, um, they were taken out of context, and that he was just a man out looking for love and he gave them their, his address and they let him go because they had nothing else on him. So there were suspicions about Jerome arose further when they actually found that the address he gave was in fact false. So with that, they did some more digging. They found out where he really lived with his wife and children and decided to pay him a visit. Now, they didn't have a warrant, but did manage to get a glimpse inside um, of his home, maybe through a window or something at one point. And they saw of what appeared to be nylon rope and copper wiring. These 
this rope and wiring actually had knots in it, the same knots that were used in the nylon rope and wiring that was tied to the women found in the river. So they also found as well that his mother was the owner of a green Volkswagen and it was the exact make and model, which was obviously the one that was used in the attempted kidnapping of Gloria. It was in Jerry's possession at the time. And although it wasn't enough to make an arrest, it was enough to obtain another search warrant, but this time for his vehicles. Just 48 hours later, the officers returned with the warrant and rummaged through his cars, but nothing solid was found. This did spook Jerome, though, and he quickly fled with his wife and children. Um, he was heading north, possibly in hopes of reaching Canada. With the police keeping a close eye on his whereabouts, though, it didn't take them long to realise that he was gone. So they put out an APB on the family's car and just a few hours north of Portland, the family was pulled over. And with the information they already had and the fact that one of the survivors actually positively ID'd him in a picture linking him to the crimes, Jerome was finally arrested and charged. Whilst being booked into the Salem County Jail, they found a bit of evidence on him. Although it was circumstantial, it did actually link him to the Spinker and Wood cases. That evening from jail, he called his attorney and asked him to come down to the station. Once the attorney was there, he sat with Jerome and Jerome proceeded with a five hour long discussion where he not only admitted to the crimes he was being charged of, but actually explained how he did them. After that, his attorney advised Jerome, of course, to keep quiet and not engage with the officers at all. So whilst Jerome was talking, the police, they were then hurrying to find enough evidence to be able to keep him locked up. Because um, obviously there's only a certain amount of time you can keep them there without evidence before you then have to, you know, let them go. There was a detective named Jim, Jim Stovall. He was a detective working on the case um, and he talked with Jerome. Jerome had claimed that he had an IQ of 165, it was super clever and Jim figured, you know, I can get him to talk and boy did he talk. So Jim really played into Jerome's cockiness in the interview. He asked Jerome hypothetical questions and then he came at him with like a caring, brotherly, maybe fatherly-like approach. This one... Um, Jerome's trust pretty quickly and he started to sing like a fucking canary. He was telling the detective every last detail of his crimes like he had to his attorney. He was acting really brash, almost like he was trying to impress the detective with his stories. He told of the murders in graphic detail. He also admitted to the other attacks and other attempted abductions. So this is where I'm going to reveal what became of the women that crossed his path. So trigger warning. I haven't gone, I've gone enough into it without trying to be too gruesome because, to be honest, I don't feel like it's needed personally for myself. So, Linda Slauson actually approached Jerry's home that he shared with his wife and children for the business. Um, he saw this as the perfect opportunity. He pretended to Linda that he was interested in buying encyclopedias and lured Linda inside. With Jerry's family being upstairs, once inside, he'd actually managed to further lure Linda to the basement level of the home by explaining that his wife and daughter were upstairs, so it was best for them to head downstairs as to not disturb them. 
whilst Linda was getting out all the paperwork and setting it about on a table, he then took a wooden plank and hit her over the head, knocking her out. After this, he then strangled her to death. Um, then, following murdering Linda, he stored her body in his garage. He then spent some time using her corpse as a doll. He dressed her in women's undergarments and other things. Um, later, after he'd gone for actually went for dinner with his family and had a short beer break, he then went back to Linda and actually cut off one of her feet, storing it in the freezer. He did this in order to use the severed foot as a mannequin to model in his collection of you know stolen shoes. Before long, when he was finished with Linda, he then tied the rest of her body to a car engine and dumped it in the Long Tom River. Jerry then told how he'd met Jan when a car had broken down and as he was passing, he offered to give her a lift to his home on the promise that she'd then be able to call a tow truck for her own car. While still in the car, Jerry strangled Jan with a leather strap and raped her. Jerome then continued to drive Jan to his home, where he placed her lifeless body on a pulley in his garage for several days, during which time he dressed her, took photos of her and had sex with her body repeatedly. He then removed one of her breasts in order to make a resin mould um, that he then went on to use as a paperweight. After he was finished, he removed Jan's body from his garage, tied her to a piece of railroad iron and threw her into the Longton River alongside Linda's severed foot as that had become rotten. Karen Spinker was abducted by Jerry at gunpoint from the rooftop car park before she managed to actually enter the building. Jerry had dressed himself in women's clothes for the attack on Karen. He then took her to his garage, made her try on several items of women's undergarments whilst he photographed her before he then raped her and strangled her by hanging her by her neck on the pulley. He had sex with her corpse several times. He again cut off her breast, but both this, this time and did that to make plastic moulds. Once he was finished, he tied her body to a six-cylinder car engine using nylon cord and threw her body into the river. Jerry had abducted Linda Saley from a car park at the shopping centre. He'd taken her to his garage. He raped her, strangled her, and then again played with her corpse. He decided that she put up a a bit of a fight um, so he decided that her breasts were too pink to cut off so instead he actually tried to electrocute her body in order to make it jump or dance as he said that didn't work so he tied her body with a nylon cord to a car transmission and again threw it in the river with his confession they were now able to get a warrant on the Brudos family home and there is where they found an abundance of evidence. They found the nylon cord, the copper wire, the pulley, crazy amounts of photos displayed all over his workshop walls. And they also found a photo that was kind of the smoking gun in the case, was a photo that was taken like in a mirror of someone's crotch from the angle of looking up their skirt. But in that photo, the person who had taken that photo had also managed to take a picture of themselves in the mirror, which, of course, was Jerome. And his full face is in the bottom of that picture. So after this, Jerry went on trial. He first tried to claim he was innocent by way of insanity because, you know, they always do. But after he was cross-examined by, I think it was seven experts, 
he was tried to claim that in 1967 he had suffered an accident. So when he was trying to repair a piece of equipment, he'd come into contact with a live wire and it blew him backwards. And although he was fine, he must have had a head injury as he'd suffered from severe headaches. But, you know, after these seven psychiatrists cross-examined him, they found that whilst he did have a personality disorder, he was in fact sane. He knew right from wrong. He just had zero remorse for what he'd done. And though he tried through fake tears and story of his own terrible mother, they saw that the only person he felt sorry for was himself. And that's because he was caught. And then they also obviously presented that photo that, you know, was him in the mirror. Jerome then spoke with his attorney and knew that his fate was up. And so on June the 28th, 1969, he changed his plea and pled guilty to three first degree murder charges, that of Karen Spinker, Jan Whitney and Linda Saley. That gave him three consecutive life sentences at Oregon State Penitentiary. Although he had confessed to Linda Slauson's murder, that was actually the only evidence they had connected him to the crime. They had didn't have any like proper photos of Linda and her body was yet to be discovered. Darcy was also arrested and tried as an accomplice. A neighbour of the family actually came forward and claimed that they'd witnessed Darcy helping Jerry move a body from their home. But after some investigation, they found the witness statement was discredited and with no other evidence linking Darcy at all to any of the crimes, she was free to go. And to be honest, I guess we'll never know whether she was in fact an accomplice, whether she was aware of some wrongdoing but had no way of stopping him or if she was completely oblivious the entire time. I don't think anyone's ever going to know that. After this, whilst Jerry was behind bars, he actually filled his cell with women's shoe catalogues. He even wrote to major companies requesting to be sent them claiming that he was it was his substitute for porn that wasn't the only way he'd actually filled his time while incarcerated though and he lodged countless appeals one of these times he argued that a photograph taken of him with one of his victims cannot prove his guilt as it wasn't the body of a victim that he'd been charged with murdering and blah 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 these attempts obviously failed and in 1995 the parole board themselves told jerry that he will never be released it is speculated by some that those four women were not his only murder victims, but there actually isn't enough evidence out there to support this claim for any other people missing. In 1970, Darcy filed for divorce from Brudos and legally changed her name. She also obtained a court order that prohibited her children from ever having contact with their father for their own safety, and she moved away with them to an unknown location. An investigation journalist, I think his name was Rod Inglet, was actually able to go to the penitentiary and interview Jerome. He was given his full file with physical evidence, etc. Jerome said to him that during his time in that 18 month long stint, he would just drive around for hours at a time on nights trying to find the perfect victim. And the perfect victim had to have what he desired the most, which was the perfect pair of heels. And once he found the ones he was looking for, the arousal began and his plan would start to unfold. He spoke about how when he was putting the women up on the pulley, he got a thrill from the sound of their high heels hitting the wall behind them. Rod stated that Jerome had zero remorse for what he'd done, which is not surprising. And he seemed to like being interviewed. He was smiling as he spoke about the sick things that he did. But it's actually was quoted apparently somewhere as saying that Sharon Wood, the survivor, was that bitch that almost broke his thumb, which clearly knocked his ego a little bit, you know, like, fuck off Jerome, why don't I just play the world's smallest violin for you, you creepo. 
Later on, he actually became ill with liver cancer and died March the 28th, 2006, boo-hoo. At the time of his death, Jerome was the longest incarcerated inmate recorded at Oregon State. That was with his jail time spanning 37 years from 1989. So with that, that was the end of Jerome Brudos, a sadistic piece of shit. I don't want to end the episode on him at all, so I'm going to talk quickly about his victims, families and survivors. I didn't find a massive amount of information, but I did want to give you what I did find. Sharon Wood, um, I actually watched a documentary on Channel 4 called Surviving a Serial Killer, and Sharon Wood, Wood was on there herself talking. She unfortunately didn't have the best of times after the attack. She suffered immensely with survivor's guilt, which was actually only fueled more when reporters and other people were asking her questions like, why did you survive and the other women didn't, and other crap like that, which is just horrid. As a child, Sharon, she was put through a lot. She'd watched her mother, grandmother and other women in her family endure horrific abuse from her father and her grandfather. So she was already dealing with that trauma from her past and now trauma from the attack and the survivor's guilt. So the days following the attack and bullshit interviews she had to do with silly reporters, she went out, met a man and they both drank pretty heavily together. This is when Sharon stated her life became darker still. The man she met that night went on to become her husband quite quickly and not a nice one at that. She actually became a victim of domestic violence, unfortunately, and with um, that and her two children, she kind of saw no way out for a long time until after seven years of marriage, she just got up one day and thought, I've had enough. And she picked herself and her kids up and got the hell out of that. So luckily, after all these horrible ordeals, Sharon's life turned around this time for the better. She now has 11 grandchildren, one great-grandchild and a wonderful, loving husband. She did still say in the documentary how, you know, she, she doesn't know why she survived. But I do hope that that survivor's guilt is gone because she she shouldn't feel like that. Thing that she said on the documentary was I feel like I'm the voice of at least four women that can't be here today she spoke later on said how she the minute somebody wants to speak to her and put an episode out there about what happened to her she's going to speak she's going to speak for them all and the very end of the documentary it ended with her saying that she's out there in the world living but she does have these women with her riding on her back through it all which I just thought was really nice I couldn't find anything really on Gloria at all other than what I've already touched upon but I do hope she's out there living her best life and that the families of Linda Sauce and Linda Saley, Jan and Karen have found closure and that they're also able to live in peace. Personally I believe that all these women deserved way better and I do believe that if doctors had just taken his statements of desires and the things that he spoke about when he was younger more seriously from an early age this could possibly have been prevented. I do think that, you know, there's that whole argument of nature versus nurture, but then in the same breath I think there's people out there that get treated like shit as kids and they don't turn out to be these sadistic assholes. So, you know, everyone can have their own opinion, but I do think that this could possibly have been prevented if they'd have just listened and kept him in and given him the help that he clearly needed from a very young age. But anyway, I... I got most of my information for this episode from media write-ups on write-ups online and obviously the Channel 4 documentary, um, I'll say it again, is Surviving a Serial Killer. But I did just want to plug some others that I did find interesting to read. So there was the, the casualcriminalist.com and allthat'sinteresting.com. 
um, I found those really interesting to read if you want to go ahead and have a look at those. Online there is a site called findagrave.com memorial. There you'll actually find that you can leave virtual flowers with a message to the individuals. So if you type into the search bar saying to Google the name of the person you're looking for with find a grave after that, it will take you straight onto their pages and you can either click to leave a flower leave a message or both so if that's something that you feel inclined to do that would be quite nice for these women and, and anyone out there so that is the end of my episode thank you so much for listening i think i'm gonna next episode i'm probably i think i might do hauntings i feel like i need something a little bit fun for the next episode i really enjoyed looking into the one last time and there is a quite a few spooky places over the uk so I know there's a place called Aston Hall in Birmingham that I might touch upon. That looks pretty cool. So I think I might do that. Hopefully that'll be next week. And I'm not going to be lying to you again and saying, oh, I'll do it in a week. And then not do it because I'm just not organised in the slightest at all, am I? So hope you have an amazing week, amazing day, evening, date, whatever, wherever you're listening to this. And I will speak to you all very soon. I uh, love you loads. Bye.